Hello, welcome to Spirit Voyage. I'm your host. Does today's radio ever leave you feeling like you're in the desert? I almost got killed in that classic rock sandstorm. Nothing but the same old drone. Mirages of obnoxious morning DJs. The oppressive corporate sun baking weary listeners. Crikey! I almost died listening to those Vegemite, uh, what do you call them, bands. Fortunately for these weary drones in the desert, there is an oasis. WCBN-FM Ann Arbor, your home in the desert. With refreshing freeform. And breezy specialty programming and public affairs. And camels that need your help. Your oasis in the desert. And the camels that watch over it need your help. Fundraiser is your chance to help the oasis of Freeform Radio. Point your web browser to www.wcbn.org and pledge your support to help water the camel and keep the oasis of Freeform healthy and green. In the desert of the radio dial. This is Ellen Ginsberg uh, speaking over the wavelengths of WCBN. Uh, what is that right? That's right. WCBN, that's right. We're a small station specializing in quality programming and need listener support so they don't have to depend on the neoconservative government and their censorship. Good afternoon. You've got Living Writers on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. And today, I'm so glad you're joined, you're tuned in. And what a great show by DJ Limchop. Let me just say once again, today in the studio, I'm thrilled to have Ruth Behar here in person, back downstairs here at WCBN FM Ann Arbor after some years from when you were here uh, some time ago being interviewed. Yes, I don't know how long ago. It must have been a very long time ago. (laughs) But I know I was here because once I came down into the space, this was very familiar. Yes, it's a, it's a, um, it's a home away from home for many of us here in Ann Arbor. And even if you only visit it once in a while, um, it's it, I, we're always here to welcome you back, Ruth. That's Thank for sure. Thank you. Thank you. It's great to be here today. Thank you. Well, it's great. It's wonderful to see you, especially, um, as I have to just say on a personal note, um, I'm so happy because uh, I've well, I've been thinking of you a lot recently, not only because your book, Across So Many Seas, is out, and you, you just had a, one of, um, like, a book launch at Literati. Yes. Um, Yesterday. <laughs> I know. This is a good, what a week. And you're, <laughs> what a week. And you're flying away tomorrow, which I wonder if, if, if that isn't also for the book, too. Kind of. It's actually for a previous book, but uh, I'm going to mention this book as well, but I'm on my way to Mexico to... Uh, a big book fair um, in San Miguel de Allende, so uh, I'll be there for the weekend. And, and what what book? Which previous? Because you have many books, which I, yeah, we will also I, I, talk I now about. I have three middle grade novels. So that one is Lucky Broken Girl, and it's in Spanish. So I'll be presenting it in Spanish, as it has a completely different title in Spanish. It's Mi Buena Mala Suerte, Ooh. which translates as My Good Bad Luck, which was which seemed close to Lucky Broken Girl. We couldn't get Lucky Broken Girl to sound right in Spanish, so we came up with a completely different title that got the gist and it of feels... being lucky and not lucky at the same time. Yes. So Mi Buena Mala Suerte. So I'll be presenting it 
in Spanish in Mexico, which I've not done before. And of course, I'm bringing some copies of the new book, Across So Many Seas, which will be out in Spanish as well, but not until March, until uh, I think March 17th or 19th, it will be out. And in Spanish, a beautiful title, A Través de los Mares. Ooh, yeah, yes. I know, it's beautiful. That is lovely. And there's, in in Across So Many Seas, in this edition, there's m- much Spanish to enjoy, as mm-hmm. well as Old Spanish mm-hmm. and a particular Espanol, like a, a well, I'm not pronouncing it right, but spelled with a Y. Um, That's right. A, a, a very particular ancient, ancient Spanish. Spanish. Yes, yes. It's called. We call it nowadays Ladino or Judeo Spanish because it's the Spanish that Sephardic Jews continue to speak. These are the the people that lived in Spain until 1492, until the expulsion. And even though they were expelled, they loved their language so much that they continued to speak Spanish in all the places where they lived afterwards, many of them in different countries of the Ottoman Empire. And they continued to speak this Espanol, but they added other words to it, you know, depending on their different diasporas. They added Turkish and Arabic and French and Italian. So it's this mix of languages, but with a lot of old 15th century Spanish. And it's amazing because if you speak modern Spanish and you hear somebody speak Ladino, you can understand each other. It's really quite incredible, even though they are now two separate languages. And and it sounds like how you represent it in Across So Many Seas, Ruth, is that the person knows that they're speaking, like is surprised. I think it comes in the final um, mm-hmm. part of the, the book. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. you know what? We're getting ahead of ourselves <laughs> We're getting a little ahead of bit. Ourselves. So we'll get there. We'll we'll get there. Um, I also wanted to say thank you, Ruth, for being here on this day, this special week, the fundraiser week for WCBN. Um, I really appreciate and look forward to our conversation today. And um, and thank you all out there for listening today um, and and every day to WCBN because I know that we are we are lucky to have a community. Of, of folks who tune in um, across the, the days of the week, across the hours. <laughs> across uh, the seas. And literally, thank you, Ruth, for saying that. Across the seas, people do, like for different shows. I don't know if we have n- many yeah. international living writers listeners, but I know for other programs here at the station, we've got loyal folks out there in many different countries. So great. And remember, it's Valentine's Day, so it's a day of love. So if you love the radio, go ahead and support the radio. Radio, this wonderful radio station. That's right. My heart is beating faster now. <laughs> and, and to do that, head to our website, um, please. And you can leave notes and messages um, when you donate, too. And we'd, we'd love to hear your thoughts and ideas. And um, yeah, it would be wonderful. And today, Ruth, yeah, just to be here and get to celebrate with you Valentine's Day. Mm. And um, also... Um, because you were my professor so many so long ago when I first came to Ann Arbor uh, as a grad student and many years across so many years <laughs> okay I'll stop I'll stop with the across so many seas connections but yeah so thank you again Ruth for being here oh it's great thanks for having me um, it's really nice to be here and before you head to Mexico which sounds especially wonderful right now too um and you used to live in Mexico Mexico for a time I did I lived in Mexico for several years as, as an anthropologist. I've lived in Spain and then in Mexico in a small town for three years and then went back summer after summer for many, many years. And I stay in touch with people there 
as well. So it is a very special place for me. Mm. And, well, you know, this makes me think. I'll read the short bio, as is our way on Living Writers, in your latest book, Across So Many Seas, and then we'll go from there. Okay. Ruth Behar, the Perga Belpre award-winning author of Lucky Broken Girl, Letters from Cuba, and Tia Fortuna's New Home, was born in Havana, Cuba, grew up in New York, and has lived in Spain and Mexico. Her work also includes poetry, memoir, and the acclaimed travel books, An Island Called Home, and Traveling Heavy. She was the first Latina to win a MacArthur Genius Grant, and her other honors include a John Simon Guggenheim Fellowship and being named a great immigrant by the Carnegie Corporation. She is an anthropology professor at the University of Michigan and lives in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And we're so lucky to have you here. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Um, so, Ruth, when did you decide, because I, I knew you as an anthropology mm-hmm. uh, writer, mm-hmm. as an ethnographer. Right. And, as, as, and so when, when did you start thinking about storytelling and this particular, like a middle grade storytelling? Because mm-hmm. All our our main characters across these generations of of young girls are twelve years old. Mm-hmm. Um, when when did you think this is a a, a genre mm-hmm. and a way to tell stories, and why is it important to you? Yeah. Well, I think of myself as a storyteller. I think I was a storyteller as an anthropologist as well. So it's not as if I just suddenly became a storyteller. I always felt that that my role as an anthropologist was actually to be a story listener. So I was a story listener first. I loved hearing other people's stories and writing them down. And, you know, and I wrote a whole book called Translated Woman. That's the life story of one woman, actually a Mexican street peddler who I was very, very close to. She passed away a few years ago. Um, Esperanza, wonderful person. And so I listened to her story over many years and then wrote a whole book about her, but I also listened to the stories of other people. So I considered myself a story listener. And I think that gave me the training and the foundation and the kind of bedrock I needed to become a storyteller to eventually write fiction as well. But I always, even though I wrote nonfiction for most of my career, I always had this dream that I would write fiction one day. I wanted to write short stories. I wanted to write novels. But I wasn't sure that I knew how to do it after so many years as an anthropologist and listening to real stories in real places. I didn't know if I could make up stories about people. Um, And so I was just, can I do this? Um, But then what happened about 10 years ago, as as I was nearing the age of 60, um, I started writing Lucky Broken Girl. I didn't know it would turn out to be Lucky Broken Girl, but it was a story about a girl just arrived from Cuba who's in a car accident and uh, ends up bedridden for a year, ends up um, with a severe injury to her leg and has to be in a body cast. And Is that that girl was me. <laughs> that really happened to me. Um, and it was, of course, you know, a major dramatic, you know, turning point in my life. I think as, you know, when, as we're growing up as children, you know, each of us has a turning point. 
a moment that just kind of makes us who we're going to be, perhaps. Um, and for me, that, that moment was the broken leg moment. Um, so I started writing that story from the point of view of the girl. I had thought about it a lot. Um, as a grown-up woman, I would look back at that time period. I had written about it in my book, The Vulnerable Observer. I wrote an essay where I remembered that experience. Um, but it was always like looking back at the experience, kind of memoir style. Mm. But when I finally said, let's write this from the 10-year-old girl's perspective, let me be, be back in that body, in that mind, in that heart, re-experience what it would be like to be so young and not be able to move for a year and have to be taken care of by your mother when you already feel like you're, you know, you're 10, you're pretty grown up, you know. So I started just you know, thinking about the girl and writing about it from the girl's perspective. And, um, and then I realized that it wasn't a book where I was an adult writing about a 10-year-old girl, but rather I was the girl telling my story. So it was a, a book for kids. You know, I realized it was a book for kids, and I used language that was accessible to younger people, I thought, um, and was able to get it to an agent who specializes in kid lit, and then we got it to an editor um, who publishes books for kids and who, in fact, specializes in middle grade novels. And, and Nancy Paulson. Nancy Paulson. Yeah, yeah. And she said, how did you know how to capture the middle grade voice so well? Mm -hmm. And I said, well, I just remember that time in my life so vividly, that year that I couldn't move, that I had to be in bed. I just couldn't forget that time. So somehow that moment in my life just stayed with me. And I guess that voice of that girl just stayed with me. It makes sense that it would be the language of the time would be so vivid for you because mm -hmm. you were you were forced to have this life of the mind. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I was at forced a, to have a, young, a life of the mind. Yeah, young yeah. age. At a very young age. No. I, I was like a little intellectual. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> In my bed. A little, little Ruthie uh, there, you know, oh. being very, <laughs> being very contemplative. But, but it's true. No, and the amazing thing, this is something that amazed us as Cuban immigrants. The school sent a tutor to the house. They sent a teacher to the house to teach me because I was going to be out of school for a year. So somehow the public school in New York, I don't know how, in a very working class immigrant neighborhood, they were concerned enough, they sent a teacher and the teacher brought books to my bedside. And I just remember that so vividly because we didn't have a lot of books, you know, they were expensive, we didn't have a lot of money as immigrants. And, and suddenly I had like books, I had, you know, books there at my bedside. And, and that was what I mostly did. It was a pre-internet moment you know there was a television but it was in the living room it was one of those tvs with a whole console it was like a piece of furniture that i guess you just couldn't move it so i didn't, didn't have tv i didn't have a cell phone of course so i didn't have access to you know all this other media it was really just books and she also brought me sometimes copies of the newspaper and i would read that as well so i was always reading i was reading a lot that year in bed so yeah it did it, it, it make me be more of a thinker um that you know that year i sort of you know, transmogrified and became <laughs> became a thinker and, and, you know, and maybe a writer um, as well, because I started, you know, keeping a diary and thinking about writing and uh, stuff like that. And so you'd write your your thoughts on what you were reading down or, or I, I your did. feelings? Both. Too. Yeah, both. Absolutely. Yeah. Such great, uh, like that you did both. 
Because again, at that age, usually mm-hmm. it's like, I don't know, I went roller skating today. Yeah, no, and I was a very active kid before this happened. I was a big hopscotch player. We played hopscotch, you know, outside on the sidewalk. And yeah, and I, you know, I was, in fact, in the book, the character Ruthie is called the Hopscotch Queen of Queens. Because the story is taking place in Queens, New York. So she's the Hopscotch Queen of Queens. (laughs) Well, today in the studio for Fundraiser Week here (laughs) at WCBN-FM in Arbor on Living Writers, we have Ruth Behar, the Hopscotch Queen of Queens. (laughs) We're going to be talking about her latest middle grade novel, Across So Many Seas. I'm T. Hetzel, and we've got Jason behind the glass. We'll be back. I don't know what happened. All my friends said just try it. One time is all. So I did. And now I can't stop. I just can't seem to get enough. WCBN is like a monkey on my back and I can't get rid of it. I'm addicted. I don't know what I would do without it. But they need help, financial help, or who knows what'll happen. And then where will I be? Scanning the dial, trying to find a replacement. But there isn't one, I tell you. There's no high like WCBN. Stop the madness. Make a pledge for your student station. Come on, Ann Arbor. Give into it. Feed your habit. Welcome back. If you're just tuning in, I'm so glad you did, because today, here in the studio... Ruth Behar is here, and we've got her latest across so many seas here on the table with us. It's fundraiser week, so it's also special in that way. Um, Please take a look online um, and see if there's any t-shirt or or beanie or other thing that uh, catches your eye. And um, and yes, please make a pledge, make a donation to your community radio station. Um, Ruth, across so many seas. Um, I love also <laughs> the art of this. So yes. I'm, I'm sort of riveted when I look at this cover. I posted it on the Living Writers Instagram too. Um, I've, it's beautiful. Were you, is that, now is that something with Nancy Paulson books? Yes. That it's connected also to Lucky Broken Girl? Like, is it like a look that you're Mm. developing? And does that mean there'll be more? (laughs) That's so great. That's such a great question. Well, the artist, his name is John Parra, P-A-R-R-A. And he did the cover for my previous book, not for Lucky Broken Girl, but the one before this one, which is called Letters from Cuba. And that book is inspired by the story of my maternal grandmother. And this book, Across So Many Seas, is inspired by the story of my paternal grandmother. So each grandmother inspired a book. And uh-huh. um, They would and love that. I think Abuela's so. Abuela's so happy. I know. <laughs> my two abuelas are very happy, I hope. And this book, so, you know, so as with any book cover or or art for a book, um, they're usually different sketches and like different ideas for the cover. So John Parra came up with several sketches, several color schemes. 
and I was able to see those and weigh in on it. And um, they were all so beautiful. It was really hard to choose. Um, but but we decided on this one, kind of the whole team, my editor and I and others uh, at Penguin Random House decided this was lovely. And just one of the things that I asked for was I did um, see a, a picture of a Turkish woman with a dress very similar to this one that's on the cover. And so John kind of did his own version of it. And then what I uh, really wanted on the cover was, of course, the sea, because it's across so many seas, but birds, nightingales, you know, come up in the story. So we've got birds on the cover. And we have both kind of the stars and the sun at the same time. And then the girl that's looking out at the horizon is holding a musical instrument, which is the oud, O-U-D. It's a Middle Eastern instrument. And that that instrument uh, plays a very important role um, in the story. So kind of we, I think we have all the major symbols, but I think the color scheme is so beautiful um, too. It's just really, really lovely. Uh, So it was really great to, to work with John. I hope I have the opportunity for a next book to have him do a cover or, or other art uh, for, for my books. Yeah. He's wonderful. Oh, I hope so. I, I hope so, Ruth, because yes, this is be- beautiful, and it and it shows like the the feeling that you get from reading this book, mm. like this, because it's challenging to have a story that has so much loss and sadness mm-hmm. throughout it, throughout. Like yeah. it, and we're gonna get to hear a be- mm-hmm. the beginning from the beginning. Um, and we start in 1492, mm-hmm. and there's a real reason for that. And you're going to yeah. tell us what this is. But then we go, you know, there the, there's many times when mm-hmm. the family mm-hmm. have to leave what has become their home. Exactly. And mm-hmm. the parts that they're able to take with them are often the the art thank goodness like the lang or the language, language which is i think also our human art too. yes <laughs> and and yeah. music and the right. song lyrics as well as the music itself and the, the instrument for some time before mm-hmm. that too is taken away at mm-hmm. one of the exactly many, yeah. many leavings but yeah wow <laughs> thank you thank you for that wonderful beautiful commentary. I'll I'll read a little bit from the beginning of the book. So I have an epigraph to the book, and this is from a chronicle of the 1492 expulsion. It's really interesting. There was a priest who was watching as Sephardic Jews were leaving Spain. So essentially, they were ordered to leave. If they wanted to maintain their faith, they had to leave the the country, had to leave the kingdom, as it was called at the time. Um, They could convert. They were given the option to convert to Catholicism, um, and then they could stay. Um, but but if, watched very closely. But watched very closely by the Inquisition because they didn't, didn't quite believe that the conversions were true, authentic conversions. So they were always being surveilled. Um, and it's true that many did maintain their Jewish practices secretly. So that was the reason the Inquisition was created. Um, so, um, so that meant that those who, who chose to leave really fervently wanted to hold on to their faith. Um, And so this chronicle, this is the epigraph to the book, um, this priest is watching as people are leaving, as people are heading out to the road and trying to find their way to a port to get out of Spain safely. So here we go. In the first week of July, they took the route for quitting their native land 
and set off upon the hardships of the road. The small and great, old and young, on foot and riding donkeys and other beasts of burden, and on carts to the ports from which they were to leave. They traveled along the roads and through the fields with great difficulty and misfortune, some falling and others rising, some dying, others being born, and others falling ill until there was no Christian who did not grieve for them. Wherever they went, they were offered baptism, and some in their affliction converted and stayed behind, but very few. The rabbis encouraged them, and they made the women and young people sing and play tambourines and timbrels to keep up their spirits. So that's from this chronicle of the 1492 expulsion. So that helped me to kind of understand that moment of departure, almost thinking of it as a, as a 15th century deportation, like they were being deported from, from their country. Um, and then that led me to write this first chapter, chapter one called The Proclamation. The sound of trumpets coming from the direction of our town gates tears me from sleep, my dreams forgotten as I jolt out of bed. My whole family dresses quickly as the sun begins to rise. Then I follow mother and father and my brothers Isaac and Jacob to the Plaza Mayor. Hurry, Benvenida, mother says, turning around. Don't dawdle. We don't want to miss any announcements. Hearing my name usually makes me smile. As the youngest and only girl of the family, I was named Benvenida because everyone welcomed me when I was born. But today is not a day for smiles. The cobblestoned path glistening from the morning dew is slippery under my feet. It is strange to be out this early, but the familiar scent of almond sweets that perfumes our town calms me. As we join the hundreds of townspeople gathered in the Plaza Mayor, we watch the solemn procession approach. At the front marches a line of Catholic priests carrying the green cross of the Holy Office of the Inquisition. Behind them, soldiers with swords at their sides. The sun shines brightly, but the last gasp of winter air makes the day feel chilly. I draw closer to Mother to stay warm. Mother, what is happening? Why must we be here? She whispers, the rumor is that King Fernando and Queen Isabel will now insist on uniting the kingdom under the Catholic faith, which means things will get even worse for us as Jews. Let's hope that rumor is false. We wait as the officer at arms, dressed in a black robe and white collar, takes his place at the center of the Plaza Mayor and unrolls a parchment. Slowly he reads aloud a proclamation, shouting in Spanish, On this day, the 31st of March of the year 1492, we order all Jews and Jewesses, regardless of age, who live in our kingdoms and lordships, that by the end of the month of July of the present year, they depart from all of these our realms and lordships, and whoever disobeys us and does not leave within this time and is to be found in any place in our kingdom will be sentenced to death by hanging. A gasp arises from the crowd. I can see the Jews around me lowering their eyes at the indignity, echoing in my heart those words, death by hanging. I shake with fear as we head home, hardly believing what I've just heard. That's where it starts. Thank you, Ruth. And that's in part one, Ben Venita, 1492. Mm -hmm. This is the first 
because there there are, as we mentioned earlier, four parts, distinct mm-hmm. parts. Mm-hmm. So the the character here, that the voice that we're in, she's twelve years old. Yes, yes, yes. The four girls of this story. So it's it's four stories that come together at the very end, and um, they're each twelve years old, uh, living in a different place at a different time. So the first girl that you just heard. Benvenida is 12 in 1492, and she's leaving Spain with, with her family, going down to the port of Valencia, and from there to Naples, and from there to Istanbul, um, or Constantinople, as it was known then. Um, so she's on that journey uh, with her family, and they have to figure out how they're going to safely get to the port and be able to leave the country. And, um, and then uh, the next girl... Uh, Reina is living in Turkey in 1923. And then the one afterwards is Allegra living in Cuba in 1961. And the last girl is Paloma uh, living in Miami in 2003. So each of the girls is 12. And the last three girls are grandmother, uh, mother, and daughter. (laughs) Thank you, Ruth. We'll take a short break and then we'll come back to hear more. It's that time of the year for WCBN's annual fundraiser. We provide unique free programming year-round, and you can help us continue that by donating. Our budget almost entirely relies on listener support, so no donation is too small. Head over to WCBN.org and click on the Donate tab at the top to make your tax-deductible donation today. You've kept student-run Freeform Radio alive for over 50 years, and we thank you. The Yeti, the most feared of the mountain-dwelling beasts. The Czechoslovakian adventure traveler never could have fathomed that he'd come face to face with this monstrosity. But here, now, that was all that mattered. His attempts to placate the creature were futile. Certain death hung over him, like a thick yak fur. Suddenly, the light drizzle turned ferocious. The Yeti stepped forward. Then, a bolt of lightning struck the ground not thirty feet away. The Yeti was unfazed. But... Without warning, the familiar sound of John Cage's suite for toy piano filled the air. Simultaneously, the rain stopped, and a ray of light shone from between the clouds. The Yeti lurched sideways, clutching its ears. With a howl, the beast made a hasty retreat. The adventurer knew full well that the source of his salvation was none other than WCBN FM Ann Arbor. He knew not from whence the saving transmission originated. What he did know was that this was fundraiser week. He returned to a nearby town and pledged his very soul. You don't need to pledge your soul, but just a small monetary donation will help us nurse the musical souls of the world. On WCBN-FM Ann Arbor, it's fundraiser time. Blah 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 blah
Now look at Michigan's growth. Based on April 1990 population estimates, the number of Latinos living in Michigan in This time she cried and failed to wait for this time. Oh, I've heard them all. No mercy shown. Stop. One way. Hill Street. No shirt, no shoes, no service. Look at the picture. See the skull, the part of bone removed, the master race Frankenstein radio controls, the brain thoughts broadcasting radio, the eyesight television, the Frankenstein earphone radio, the threshold brainwash radio, the latest new skull reforming to contain all Frankenstein controls, the synthetic nerve radio directional antenna loop. Make copies for yourself. There is no escape from the annual WCBN fundraiser. We need your donations so we can continue to broadcast our top-notch eclectic brand of programming from the far side of the moon you never see. You may donate via your Frankenstein computer god internet at www.wcbn.org to help sustain the last bastion of freeform in the entire Ann Arbor universe. Donate money or even a manual typewriter to me for your only hope for a future. I would love a manual typewriter. <laughs> I think that was one of the best suggestions I've heard. <laughs> well, welcome back, everyone, to Living Writers. Um, and we've got Ruth Behar here. We just got to hear before the break. We got to hear Ruth reading from the very beginning of Cross, so, Across So Many Seas. And we got to hear about the different sections of the book and how we move through time. And how each character is a twelve-year-old young girl, and that they're they're linked. Yes, um, there are generations of this family across time. Exactly. How did you How did you come up with this idea? <laughs> how was this? Because I know you said it's based yeah. on your paternal grandmother. Right. Is this the family story? It is partly the family story for sure. Um, so we start with 1492 and then we jump ahead to the 20th and the 21st century, right? So I wanted to show that there is a connection between this distant past of 1492 and more modern contemporary history. But I had the idea all along, actually my very first notes for this novel you know, spelled out. It was like it was like a little verse, a little poem that I wrote. Like there are going to be four girls. They're all going to be twelve. They're going to be living in these different places. So, I did have that idea. And you're right that it does connect with my family history, my paternal family history, which is Sephardic. And then eventually they ended up in Turkey, and then in Cuba, and then in the United States, in New York and Miami. Um, so, yeah, so I definitely took all of that, which was part of my own family history, and then brought it into the novel. But the characters are all fictional characters. Um, but the one character called Reina, who's the second character, the Turkish girl, she is in some ways based on my grandmother, but a very fictionalized version of the paternal grandmother, my abuela. Um, who was from this town called Silivri um, in Turkey, a town near Istanbul. And what we know is that she uh, immigrated to Cuba all by herself. She was sent to Cuba by her family. She never saw her parents again. But what we know is that she liked these old Spanish songs that we were talking about before that, that, that were sung in Ladino. She liked those songs. And she brought an oud with her, this musical instrument. She brought the oud with her from Turkey to Cuba and she played it as a young woman but then after she married 
she didn't have time anymore to, to play it, apparently, from what my father tells me. And the, uh, the oud hung from a nail on the wall. So mm. she never played it again, but it was there. It was there as kind of this, this symbol of, uh, of her departure from Turkey and starting a new life in Cuba. And so, of course, when as you so you you have this this family story, mm-hmm. but then you change it, Ruth, to make it part of this vision of having these these four girls. Mm-hmm. Um, I love that you said that that original idea was like a like a verse, like a poem. Yeah, it was. Yeah, I mean, I wrote it as a kind of like a fragment, <clears throat> a fragmented piece, and. And I and yeah, from the beginning, it was four girls. I didn't know every detail about them, but but I knew the four places, you know, would be Spain and Turkey and Cuba and the United States, and then somehow a connection back to Spain that there would be some sort of circular journey over time. So I, I had those ideas, but I wasn't exactly sure how I was going to carry it out and what, you know, what was going to happen to each character and what the family dynamics, because each character has her own unique family mm-hmm. um, as well. So there was so much I didn't know, but but I had a rough idea. So it's, it's kind of like traveling without a map. Like, I know what country I'm going to, but I don't necessarily know how I'm going to get to every place in that country. So it's kind of like that um, as I was writing. <laughs> and is that, as you write, is that, when you're writing fiction, is that how it is for you, like traveling without a map? Yeah, and I, I've said that about my anthropology as well, that I, you know, that I did my anthropology, you know, without a map. If I, I say something like, if you don't mind going places without a map, then follow me, because <laughs> that's how I travel to places. I, I, I allow myself to get lost. So, um, so you know, I was lost in, in a lot of it because I didn't know exactly what was going to happen. With Benvenida, I didn't know exactly. I knew they had to get to a port to get out of Spain. Um, but I didn't know exactly how they were going to do that and what was going to happen along the way, right, to, to, to her and her family and all the other people that are with her and this this group that's trying to find their way to the port. I had no idea what was going to happen, what, you know, what experiences she would have. The same with Reina leaving Turkey. I wasn't quite sure what would happen on the voyage, you know, from Turkey to Cuba. I knew she was going to get there, but I wasn't sure what would happen in between. So all of that... You know, you just figure it out, or at least I figure it out, you know, day by day as I write, as I write a paragraph, a page, and just, you know, watch it, watch the story move forward. Let the story, you know, bring me to the next, the next thing that has to happen. And is, is that because then you're feeling that if you're letting the story bring you to the next place, it's, you're sort of trusting it as it's being created, like you're, mm-hmm. you're, you're guiding it too. But you're also trusting what you've you've mapped or you've built so far. Yeah, yeah. I think you do. You do have to trust. Um, you do have to have some trust in at least the basic structure that you've created for the story. Um, you know, and I knew they were all going to connect, but I wasn't exactly sure how. I knew there was <laughs> going to be a connection between the last girl and the first girl. So that Paloma in 2003 was somehow going to connect with Benvenida in 1492. I, I had this feeling that that was going to happen, but I wasn't exactly sure what that would be like, how I would write that. Um, so, so there's a lot of mysteries for me as I'm writing that, you know, that it's, it's almost like there are these different puzzles that I'm, I don't want to say solving, because that sounds like too mathematical. I'm not yeah. solving mathematical problems, but, but things are coming together. The threads, it's like the threads are all there, and I don't quite know how it's all going to get sewn together. 
um, but the threads are there, and they they end up connecting um, in ways that that I for me, if I'm enjoying the writing, the writing is also surprising me, and I'm going, oh wow, this connects with this other part. I didn't realize it was going to connect, um, and then it does, and so that's very very exciting. Good. And and it is. It sounds exciting to hear you say it, and and I feel that way that too. Um, it also seems that you are very okay with uncertainty. Mm. I guess so. You know, I hadn't thought about it that way because I don't really like uncertainty in my day-to-day life. <laughs> but but maybe in the writing, you, you, you have to definitely um, be open to uncertainty. Or I guess another way I would put it is uh, be open to serendipity. So if you're open to what might happen that you don't know yet, what's going to happen, but you know what might, and just let the story surprise you and serendipity surprises happening as you move forward. For example, um, with Benvenida, the first girl in the story, when she is leaving um, Toledo, the town that she's from in Spain, she's a poet and she's writing poems because her mother is permitting her to write poems. Her mother has taught her how to read and write, which is not a common thing for 15th century girls, but her mother comes from a family of printers, so she knows how to read and write. She's taught her daughter, but her daughter's also writing poems, which girls are not supposed to do. And when she is leaving Toledo to go to the port with her family, she takes those parchments of those fragments of poems and she hides them in the hem of her robe. She kind of sews this hem and that's where the poems are going so nobody can see that she's written these poems. Now, I didn't know that that was going to connect with what happens in part three where Allegra, who's the girl in Cuba who has been part of the literacy campaign and she's a revolutionary young girl, but then unfortunately she has to leave Cuba because her parents um, are being, her father in particular, um, is being persecuted. And so she has to leave and the plan is that they're going to leave after her. And then um, she also, she's wearing, her mother has given her a Jewish, uh, a a necklace with a Jewish star uh, for good luck. But you're not supposed to have any jewelry when you leave Cuba at this in this period in 1961. And so her mother sews the necklace into the hem of her dress so that she can get it out of Cuba. And when I wrote that, I said, oh, my God, that connects to the first girl, you know, putting her poems inside the hem of her robe. And I didn't realize that that was going to happen. So that's the kind of thing that happens as you write. That's what I mean by the serendipity that things end up connecting and you don't realize that they're going to do that until you're in the act of writing. Yes. And that must be those moments. Mm. Just. Yeah. You also know then that that you your path is is true, (laughs) not to be over melodramatic (laughs) about it, but it's that you're. Yes, that the story is, is, is finding you. Yeah, the story. Uh, I love that. Definitely, the story is finding you. And I think that's where you said being open to uncertainty or just being open to serendipity, just, you know, trusting that the story is going to reveal itself to you and the, the different parts of it will come together, especially a story like this where they are four separate stories right but they're not short stories by any means they it, it is a novel but you know but you you really have to keep reading to the very end to see the connection and then they all connect um, but you have to also as a reader you have to also trust in the uncertainty of the story and it's mm-hmm. like oh is this going to connect or not mm-hmm. and you have to keep reading <laughs> and trust that that they will that all the stories will come together 
because there are leaps forward. Yeah. But, but I would say the first one is is the, the biggest leap. Right. And then it feels more because that's when you can see maybe the clear lineage of, yeah. among the, the the girls. Right. Um, right. I um I was I was thinking about uh um uh, something you said earlier, Ruth, and uh and it's flown out of my mind for some reason, which is <laughs> very, very unfortunate because I was ex- oh no, I've got it. Okay. Oh good. Okay. Sorry everyone. I'm, <laughs> I'm back. I'm back. <laughs> um because when you were talking about um Benvenida with the parchment and how I love this idea of how p- potentially you you researched a way to find out how this young girl who's 12 could be able to read and write and to be a poet then to be yeah. this special girl and so you found a sort of in research I'm imagining this idea of oh her mother's part of a printing family so yes. her mother has this already she has this Mm-hmm. This also this power too, mm-hmm. and understanding. Yeah, no, I did find that in my research, and that's how I modeled um, Benvenida on on a girl who would come from a family of printers and who's excited about language and words, and so she's a girl who's excited about reading and writing and singing and speaking, because really language is one of the main themes of this story. You know, now that I, we're talking about this. Um, you know, it, it comes it comes back in various ways. In, in the Turkish story, it's through the songs, um, and then in, in Allegra's story, the girl who is the revolutionary girl, it's she she participates in a literacy campaign. She wants to help people, you know, in the countryside learn to read and write. So she's totally into literacy, and then the last girl is kind of bringing all of this, all of these legacies together. And for her, it's wanting to be a singer and wanting to you know sing about you know, her own history, and she's learning the old songs from her grandmother, from the Turkish grandmother. She's learning the old Sephardic songs and wants to learn to sing them. So, you know, so all the girls are kind of obsessed with language and song and poetry and and language. And reaching outward. And reaching outward, yeah. Reaching outward through language, yeah. Yeah, and preserving a heritage as well, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay, let's take a short break and we'll be back. Today yeah. on Living Writers, Ruth Behar is here. Her book on the table with us, Across So Many Seas. I'm T. Hetzel. We'll be back. Looking to maximize your potential? WCBN, preparing you today for the music of tomorrow. Experience a variety of musical styles and genres, including blues, folk, reggae, rock, world, techno, hip-hop, and more. WCBN offers a hands-on musical listening experience brought to you by skilled DJs in a commercial-free environment. Make WCBN a part of your future today. WCBN, WCBN. Oh, I like that one. Uh-oh. That's that's catchy. This one's that's... this one. I'm having trouble. Oh, oh, Ruth, don't worry about the headphones. It's okay. You don't need them. Oh, I don't. Nope, it's okay. Oh, great. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so, so we're back. We're back. We're back on, and um, we've got um, across so many seas on the table here with us, and Ruth Behar is in the house. Um, 
and flying to Mexico tomorrow, which is so exciting. Um, so with Across So Many Seas, this the, the beginning um, young woman, Benvenida, <laughs> she, she, you, you mentioned the, the parchment and her poems um, just in the last quarter, Ruth. And she also, she has a sadness about leaving home as mm -hmm. anyone would and as each character who we meet yeah. in, within the novel has like this this sadness um and she she writes a poem and she thinks she's thinking of the future and who might come to their home and she hides it in the wall mm -hmm. when you when you were drafting across so many seas mm -hmm. Ruth did you were you did was that there in the beginning because it was already part of Benvenida's nature to to not only write the poems but also to try to keep one in the home mm -hmm. as well because it becomes very key in the circle yeah. at yes, the end absolutely yeah no that was something that was there from the very beginning I imagined her leaving wanting to leave a trace of herself for the future and you know knowing that she was leaving her home not not knowing whether she would ever return and they had a wall and uh you know a, a big sort of adobe type you know mud mud wall uh, which are very very common in spain and i just imagined her there you know just writing something and just leaving it inside the wall and just you know the way you might put something in you know in a bottle and throw it out to see mm. you know a message in a bottle so I just thought sort of thought you know she'll leave something behind of herself whether it's for her family or for the future she didn't really know but she was going to leave some words behind um, and yeah and I think that idea was with me from the very beginning how it would then resurface at the end of the story that was a little bit more uncertain, but but I did have some idea about that. I did know that the story from the beginning would end in the Sephardic Museum in the city of Toledo, or Toledo in the U.S. People might pronounce it Toledo, so so you know what I'm talking about. The, but <laughs> but the Spanish city is Toledo, and I um, have been there many times and have been to the Sephardic Museum, which was once a 14th century synagogue. And that building was used and repurposed for many, many things over time. Um, but somehow, I think in the early, some sometime in the early 20th century, it was um, restored and renovated, and they were able to peel away layers of wall and plaster and find, you know, the original um, etched walls and carvings and so on. And so, it's an amazing, amazing structure, an amazing piece. And you, you know, you you enter this space, and uh, it's just fascinating. You really feel like you are transported into the past, um, and it's just so interesting to me that that what was once a living Sephardic community is now um, that community is in some way, um, I guess, held or taken care of or guarded mm. within a museum. Um, so I found that so interesting. I think also being an anthropologist, I'm very aware of museums and heritage, you know, being in some way preserved in museums. So I just thought the story will have to end in the museum. So we start with a living Sephardic community in Toledo and we end with the museum that preserves that legacy. Um, so that so that much I knew, and then how the rest would fit, and how we would have Benvenida's <laughs> poem that that all had to be figured out. 
and I had to figure out also there's an oud. I mentioned that there's the oud, you know, that Reina, the one based on my grandmother, brings from Turkey to Cuba. But then she loses that oud. That oud um, isn't allowed to be taken out of Cuba. So she, she loses the oud, but then another oud. <laughs> there's a second oud <laughs> um, resurfaces at the end of the book as well. So you have to read to find out. But um, <laughs> So I, I had to find a way to connect all these pieces. And I wanted, wanted them to connect in a way that didn't feel forced also, that just felt like this could happen. It's, it's amazing, but these things could happen. You know, we do end up connecting with the past in various mm -hmm. kinds of ways. And so, yeah, so it, it, as, as I wrote, I think it all started to feel, you know, f right, like comfortable, like this could happen. This is a possibility. This is one of many possible realities that could happen. Mm -hmm. And you, you have it loose like that as you write it, as if, as readers, we are all sure that this <laughs> connection is uh -huh. a through line. Uh-huh. That's great. I'm glad. <laughs> but but it, like they, they, as the family talks about it, they say, well, we'll claim her as our own. Yeah. Um, so it's not as if somehow, you right. know, <laughs> but they do claim her. But we're exactly. like, oh, yes. But it's loose in that way where it's not... You know, right. the connecting the dots, it's not like this this <laughs> Sharpie line. <laughs> no, no, it's not a Sharpie line. It's not, you know, a necessarily a biological or genealogical connection. But just as you said, they're claiming we're going to claim this ancestor as our ancestor. Um, and so, yes, yeah, so I wanted it to be more open in that way, a, a more sort of spiritual connection as opposed to necessarily more, you know, a proven biological geneal genealogical connection <laughs> that I, I love this moment when they're there at the at the museum and also um in cuba with um uh when allegra is going out into the countryside yeah it's um it's she's such a a, a brave little girl yes and and her, her mother is also so key because having been the the brave little girl that traveled across the right. ocean from Turkey right. um, and in a lot of ways in parts of her life not able to control she's very clear about wanting her own daughter to be able to make decisions mm -hmm. for her own uh, with her own agency even yes. at 12 yes yes to, to absolutely a, a brigadista or in, right exactly as, and a teacher and a teacher a young a 12 year old teacher who's teaching these elders uh, these eld elderly farmers how to read and write and it's so beautiful. Um, Did you find happening? that in your research, Ruth, or was that part of family stories? No, that's or? more from my research. I'm really fascinated by the literacy campaign that took place in Cuba in 1961. The revolution begins in 1959 with Fidel Castro coming to power. And then in 61, they spend that whole year on this major literacy campaign. And what's so interesting is that girls were very involved. And for most of these girls, it was really a, a desire for freedom, get away from their families, see other parts of Cuba. Many of them were from Havana, and they'd never been to the countryside. So it was this amazing experience for so many girls that were, you know, kind of being released into this sort of revolutionary freedom. So, um, so I had read a lot about it. There's, you know, documentaries and there's, you know, lots and lots of information about it and pictures and so on. Um, so I very much wanted Allegra, one of my characters, to be involved in the revolution and to just really, you know, see the idealistic 
side of what they were trying to do, at least in the early years. Um, so that's where the inspiration for that came from. Yes, because it, it brings such a, a warmth to it, which, uh-huh. is, which is also balanced with the parts of the family story where it becomes necessary for, for Allegra to leave mm-hmm. and, and her older brothers and sisters have already gone, their families. Right. Um, so that part is also, you, you, you're clear about it in this mm-hmm. story as part of the, the historical reality for this particular family, definitely, and many mm-hmm. other Cubans. Mm-hmm. And many others who left in that era. Yeah, I wanted to show different kinds of displacement. So there's the displacement of the expulsion in 1492, there's the displacement of Reina, who disobeys her father, and her father sends her to Cuba as a punishment. She, with her oud, off she goes. And then Allegra um, doesn't think she's ever going to leave Cuba because she's so involved with the revolution and so on. And then as finds, Cuban as the palm trees, as Cuban as the palm trees, and she still feels very Cuban even as she's leaving. But she realizes that she has to go, um, and so she also is displaced. And then the last girl, Paloma. What's interesting about her is that she's not displaced. She feels at home in Miami, and she's taking the family, in a sense, to Cuba and kind of, you know, bringing that circle to a close. Or, or bringing the family to, to Toledo. Oh, did I say to, did I say to Cuba? Yeah, bringing the family. I think I may have said Cuba, and I meant to say Toledo. Bringing the family to Spain. I mean, they're going on a vacation. That's the interesting thing. That yes, a vacation. It's a vacation. A different kind of traveling. It's a different kind altogether. of travel. There we go. It's a different kind of displacement. Let's <laughs> let's go elsewhere. But in this case, they wonder if they have some connection to Toledo. Because she learns that her grandmother's her grandmother's grandmother's last name was Toledano, and so is it possible that we have roots in Toledo? Um, and uh, many people who are Sephardic have last names that are the names of Spanish towns. Even my name, Bejar, is the name of a Spanish town, um, spelled with a J, B-E-J-A-R, um, a town near near Salamanca, near the border with Portugal. So. So, you know, you wonder, well, you know, why do we have these names, these these toponyms, um, you know, could be a connection back to Spain in some way. Ruth, thanks so much for being <laughs> here today and for talking with me. I've loved it. Thank you. It's such a pleasure to talk to you, too. Thank we you, ha- T. You'll have to come back again sooner, <laughs> sooner rather sooner. than later. <laughs> Absolutely. I'd love to. Today on Living Writers, it's been Ruth Behar and her latest Across So Many Seas. Um, Thanks, everyone, for listening. Thanks for being part of the WCBN community. And thanks for being part of our fundraiser week. Many, many thanks to Jason and Behind the Glass and to all you out there listening. I'm T. Hetzel. Until next time. (laughs) Yay, we did it. (laughs) Thank you so much. (laughs) I hope I didn't mess up too much. No, not at all. I I could swallow the sea. I can hold my breath and count to a zillion. I can fly. I can stretch and stretch for a million billion miles till I'm the highest man in the world. Yeah, well, I could become a giant robot with magic death rays. That's nothing, man. I can't be burnt. Like, I could eat flame and stick my head in an oven and close the door and turn invisible and count... Hey! Will you kids keep it down in there? Your mother's got a splitting headache! And knock off that boasting! At the 
same old senseless posturing has got you ready to junk your terrarium and start raising sea monkeys. Hold the bus. You've got the bragging rights to the best mix of freeform music and public affairs. Right here on WCBN-FM, Ann Arbor, 88.3, Radio Free. No lions. I can speak 12 languages and turn into plastic, man. Well, I could talk to animals and turn into Stretch Armstrong and The Flash. I've seen Star Wars and Planet of the Apes eight trillion times. Yeah, well, I've seen Tatum O'Neill naked. Yeah, well, I could eat 900 boxes of Count Chocula, and my uncle used to host Whopper Room, and he knows Count Chocula, Godzilla, and Bruce Lee personally. I got an iron neck. Hey, I thought I told you to keep it down in there. If I hear one more word, you're getting head cheese for dinner, and I mean it. I can juggle machetes. Man, can you hear me? I ate the brown acid at Woodstock. You liar. Hello, everyone. Live from Ann Arbor, this is the Daily Sports Report here on WCBN 88.3 FM. I'm Vihan Iswar. I'm joined by Kobe Siegel on this cold but sunny Valentine's Day evening. Uh, if you have any plans, I hope they go well. If you don't have any plans, well, the Daily Sports Report will be your plans. Kobe, how's your day been? Um, It's been good. You know, I've been uh browsing all all the Valentine's Day posts, so, you know, it's uh, it's like... Um, yeah, it's been great. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, for those of you who are listening who don't have a Valentine, there's still hope. There's always hope. But that's not what we're here to talk. We're here to talk sports. And specifically, we're going to be talking a lot of NFL football. Uh, but there are some fairly important Michigan basketball games that we will touch upon briefly. And so we're just going to start things off by talking about Michigan men's basketball. I know it's not something any of us enjoy doing. I don't know if any of you enjoy hearing about it. But while we're here and... I know, um, Kobe, you've got a connection. You grew up an Illinois fan as a Chicago native, so we can still just touch upon this. Kobe, just, I, I know a lot of things went wrong, but what do you think was the one thing that went wrong as the Wolverines got blown out by almost 30 points last night? Well, not having Doug McDaniel, uh, that did not help. I watched the first half, and they were, I did not bother watching the second half, I don't, I don't, I don't think anything crazy happened in the second half. Um, besides them keep uh, just the lead extending more, but in the first half, you know, there were like a couple minutes where they're like, okay, like they're down four, they're down two, like maybe they can do something, but they kept leaving Terrence Shannon open for three. I mean, Illinois was, I mean, they were making what. They were getting whatever shot they wanted, and uh, yeah, this Michigan defense is just uh, not very good. It's 